Hi, and welcome to Dismantled, a podcast for intersectional environmentalists. I'm your host, Leah Thomas, and throughout this season, we'll be featuring conversations with diverse activists, changemakers, and leaders in the fight for climate justice. Intersectional Environmentalist, or IE, is a digital platform with resources, information, and action steps to help dismantle systems of oppression in the environmental movement. We believe conversations about the climate crisis must address and be led by those most impacted by it, Black, Indigenous, and POC communities. This season is sponsored by Drops, and today I'm sitting down with IE Council Member and Sustainable Fashion Advocate, Aditi Mayer, and climate justice activist, Kevin Patel. Let's get into it. Introducing yourselves might be the first place to start. So Kevin, tell us a little bit about you, what you do, and how you got into this whole eco-activist space. Of course. You know, I I started my work at a very young age, at the age of 12, uh, when I was directly impacted by the air and smog pollution here in Los Angeles. And not only did I see, you know, the inequalities, the injustices and disparities that my community was facing, um, I saw that my my peers and my fellow students didn't understand these uh, these issues. They, you know, a lot of them didn't know what was going on in our community, and I really wanted to do something about it. So I stepped up and really took on a role of, you know, advocating and being an activist in my community of South Central Los Angeles, um, but also being directly impacted by the air and smog pollution with having, you know, uh, gone through heart palpitations and irregular heartbeat. Uh, really caused me to say enough is enough because if it's not only you know if it, it's not only me that's being impacted by this issue it's also my community that's being impacted by this issue and ever since then now this year actually marks the 10th year that I've been an activist uh, not only in my community but you know globally um, working with One Up Action an organization that I founded and I'm, a, I'm its executive director. And, you know, One Up Action really works for young people to become and become the next change makers, become the activists that they are by providing them the resources and funding that they need to, you know, take action. Uh, so that's a little bit about me. So, Aditi, you've been involved with advocacy and so many different spaces from sustainable fashion to labor rights and ethical consumption for quite some time. How did you get into it and become who you are right now and all the stuff that you're doing? Of course. So I had my start in the space back in 2014. Um, I was a little baby about to start my college career uh, and I didn't really know what direction I wanted to take my life in. Knew I had a passion for storytelling, design, and aesthetics. So long story short, it was the summer before my freshman year in college and it was a summer that I learned about the Rana Plaza factory collapse. And for those that are not familiar, Rana Plaza was an eight-story garment factory that was producing out of Dhaka, Bangladesh. Um, making clothes for some of the biggest fast fashion names that we know. So Zara, Mango, to name a few. 
and structural cracks were found in the building and it was ordered to evacuate. But there was so much pressure from upper management to have workers complete orders that they were called back into work. And the next day, the factory collapsed and it marks the biggest industrial disaster of our time. Um, for me, when I learned about the Rana Plaza factory collapse, I just started thinking a lot more critically about the politics of labor within the fashion industry, but more importantly, how the fashion industry was disproportionately affecting people of color. Um, also being of South Asian descent, it rang, you know, closely in that sense too. So from there, um, you know, I was a journalism student. I started looking at these issues from that perspective. I started a blog as a child of the internet does at 3 a.m. was like all about sustainable fashion, which was very much a newer concept then. And it lacked a lot of nuance. No one was talking about these issues from like a systemic oppression perspective. And fast forward now to what, six, seven years later, and I do this work full time between sustainable fashion blogging, uh, labor rights activism, and photojournalism. Well, I totally wish that we could be together, um, but you know how the how the panorama is, but hopefully I'll get to see you all um, sometime soon because I just, you know, really admire both of you all's work and dedication to intersectional environmentalism. But let's go back in time a little bit. How did both of you all's childhoods or upbringings influence the work that you do today, if at all? I guess for me, like I lived in the Midwest, so I did spend a lot of time outside. Um, And also, you know, my family was really Afrocentric growing up. So I learned a lot about Black identity and culture. And I think I do carry that into my environmentalism. Um, But for both of you all, how was your upbringing really influential in the work that you all do? Um, yeah, I think for me, you know, it's something we say a lot, right? Like black and brown communities being inherently sustainable. And I think that really rings true for me. I grew up between Orange County and LA growing up, um, grew up in a multi-generational household and also from a low income background. And I think I always kind of frame my beginnings of sustainability through that way. It was a cultural norm being South Asian, but it was also an economic necessity. And so I think all of those things framed an introduction to sustainability that up until, you know, the last two, three years, I never really considered sustainability. But I am so eternally grateful for, especially living in a multi-generational household. Um, My grandfather on my maternal side, he was a farmer back in India. And so just seeing the way he cultivated our small backyard space and just made it like, you know, always thinking about food systems and just his relationship to the land was something really beautiful that I think only until recently I fully appreciated as I've been down my own like you know, gardening and (laughs) creating food for myself journey. Um, But I also think it placed a lot of value on community and how it takes a village to raise an individual. And I think those values really ring true to my upbringing as well. The the same goes for me, I guess. Um, You know, my upbringing is quite different. I grew up in South Central Los Angeles and I've been, you know, a South LA resident um, my whole life. You know, my parents own a small business here. Uh, it's Smackdown right in South LA. I was directly impacted by the you know climate crisis when I was you know diagnosed with heart palpitations and I had to be in and out of the hospital for a better part of my life for three years actually. And until you know the doctors was like you know enough is enough. You need to get uh, you know surgery. Um, and that for me was like 
see, you know, again, it's not me and my community that's only being affected by these issues. Uh, it's, you know, the people I love, the people I care about, the place that I grew up in. And that really influenced me to say, you know what, if no one else is going to do it, I should do it. And I should also make sure that my community is educated so they themselves can do it themselves, right? They themselves can speak out. They themselves can be the activists. Um, and yeah, that's basically, you know, how my my upbringing really influenced um the work that I do now, uh, my community really influenced my work and my drive to really advocate for the environment. I'm like trying to snap into the mic, but I don't know if it's picking it up. But thank you all both for sharing. And I think it is really important for people to understand that a lot of activism and advocacy does come from a deeply personal place and that we should embrace that in environmentalism because I think it's better when it's intersectional. Um, so Aditi, this is more... Um, specific to the work that you do, um, you often reference decolonizing fashion and sustainability. Can you talk about what decolonizing means to you? I know there's a lot of different, you know, takes on decolonization um, from land to education. You know what? You're the expert. So I'll just go ahead and let you answer that question. (laughs) (laughs) By no means an expert, but uh, in terms of decolonization for me, I talk about decolonizing fashion a lot. And so to describe what I mean by that, I think it's good to first explain what I mean by colonial practice in fashion. And for me, when I think about colonial practice, it's about um, the extraction and exploitation of natural resources, whether that's the environment or labor as a means for quote unquote success and infinite financial gain. And we've seen this paradigm play out in every other industry, <laughs> but especially fashion. And so when I first learned about Rana Plaza and kind of had my start in the space, um, one narrative that was pervasive that really concerned me is the way to participate in the sustainable fashion movement at that time was, and still now in many ways, was very much limited to buying your way into a new reality. And don't get me wrong, like conscious consumerism is incredibly important. But going back to the fact, like also coming from a low income family, it was like, if this is the way you're supposed to engage with sustainability and fashion, like when we basically reduce a movement to buying power, it severely limits not only who can engage with this movement, but how we could engage with this movement. And so when I talk about decolonizing fashion, in many ways, it's about reorienting our relationship with land, labor, which are two elements that make up fashion. Um, So that means talking about everything from indigenous rights to the environmental degradation of our agricultural practices and who that is affecting to the largely undocumented workforce um, that makes up both the labor and land sectors that, you know, in both food and fashion. And so, yeah, decolonizing, I think, is an approach that inherently like lends itself to intersectional environmentalism, because if we don't kind of interrogate the historical and socio-political factors that created these systems of oppression, we're kind of missing the mark. And I think that's why, you know, so much of the narrative was completely lacking nuance for so long within the sustainable fashion movement. Thanks. That made it make so much more sense. Um, I've definitely, like, I've seen that word a lot and just understanding, like, what it means in the context of fashion, I think will be super valuable for our listeners. 
Yeah. And if I could add one more thing to that, <laughs> another really important thing to know is like the way the fashion system has operated, especially, you know, in South Asia is just like version two of colonialism. So in India, you know, prior to colonization, our systems of fashion were inherently circular. They were inherently localized economies. You know, you had your local tailor, you spun your own cotton at home, and things were passed down. And then with the introduction of the British Raj in India, you know, that basically frames the very first models of fast fashion, in my opinion. Suddenly, you had this corporation, the East India Company, that was predicated on output, output, output. And they made India sell cotton exclusively to them, only the raw material. And so, and then, so that kind of, you know, completely destroyed our artisan and textile economies, which was at one point, 25% of the world's economy was like India's trade prior to colonization. And then fast forward to the 19th century, you know, Britain starts capitalizing on this relationship of the U.S. Um, and Britain cotton relationship was, which was predicated on first, um, you know, removing indigenous folks from their land in the Americas and then bringing in slaves to work on cotton plantations. So I think it's really important, like when we're talking about decolonizing fashion, having that historical grounding of how oppression was taking place in India to how it was taking place in the Americas with indigenous communities and the slavery happening here, like it's all connected on how the fashion system currently operates. And I think a lot of people lack that context, but it's really important of understanding how, you know, things are just continuing on those systems, which I always think is really important to push. <laughs> Absolutely. So Kevin, you have been an intersectional advocate before it was like, you know, a low moment over the summer. Um, I was reading an article of yours from, it was like a year or two ago, where you expressed similar sentiment and used the exact words, like something along the lines of like, you want an intersectional approach to climate action. And I think it also is important for people to understand that, okay, intersectional environmentalism kind of had a moment in 2020. But that's because of the collective thought of so many activists from decades and decades of environmental justice work who have collectively kind of developed this idea. And I wouldn't have been able to have my definition if I hadn't heard, you know, you talk and other people speak and people like Mustafa Santiago Ali and Teresa Baker. And that's what I love so much about this community. But anywho, Please tell us about your journey to intersectional environmentalism and how that's really influenced your activism work. And if you can remember that interview from a year or two ago where you expressed this sentiment, what made you use those words exactly? I think the environmental movement and the youth movement, right? Yeah, the youth climate movement has always been, you know, um, a movement that is intergenerational, right? The sentiment that young people, old people, people in, in the between, are all fighting for the same cause, right? For environmental, uh, environmental justice, and I think in in those moments of time, and I remember this clearly. You know, I, I was looking back at the movement, and you know, being uh, during that time, I gave them an uh, interview. I was actually eight years into my activism, or nine years into my activism already, and just seeing how far we've come, but not far enough, uh, because. When I first got involved with environmentalism or even the climate movement uh, in this collective space of, you know, fighting for communities, fighting for justice uh, for our communities, I saw that, you know, 
a lot of these spaces are occupied by white people, uh, white and white passing people, and not those of, you know, black, indigenous people of color, marginalized communities, low income communities. And so it's so important to me that, you know, I talk about that because collectively, you know, I've I've always been denied opportunities because of the color of my skin or, you know, uh, denied leadership opportunities or denied to even speak because of the color of my skin. You know, intersectionality for me is making sure that we understand that if we really truly want to be intersectional, then we must under- we must include those that are at the forefront and at the front lines of the climate crisis or all of these other social justice issues. And because they all interconnect, right? And I see a lot of these organizations fighting for this, you know, fighting against the systems of oppression, but they don't include the voices that are being affected by these systems. And so that's exactly what I wanted to portray in that article and saying that we need to be more intersectional and use an intersectional approach to our environmentalism, our movement in general. If we're not being intersectional, we're not connecting the dots of how these issues are going to work. We're never going to be able to solve them. But I'm hopeful and I'm optimistic that things are going to be changing. I have hope too. Like in 2021, I don't know if it's the new administration, the Cheetos out of office, but I don't know. Last year, I didn't have a lot of hope. And I think like with the IE community, it's kind of reignited a little bit of hope, which is amazing. Think about all those plastic bottle cleaning products that you see filling grocery store shelves. Those cleaning products are loaded with unnecessary chemicals and dyes, and a shocking 68% of those bottles aren't recycled. That's over 275 metric tons of plastic waste that goes into our oceans and waterways every year. That's why we love Drops, the laundry and dishwasher detergent pods that everyone is talking about. With over 10,000 five-star reviews, you'll see in no time how great their eco-friendly products are. Drops delivers powerful cleaning from nature with plant and mineral-based formulas to your door and low-waste cardboard packaging instead of plastic containers that end up in our oceans and landfills. All the cleaning power comes in one small, efficient Drops pod that costs less than what you're using now. Sign up for auto shipments to save big. You can pause, skip, or cancel anytime. Use code DISMANTLED at drops.com slash dismantled for 25% off your first order. Um, So sustainability, and you all both touched on this a little bit earlier, but sustainability has traditionally been more like of a way of life and a mindset for Black and Brown and immigrant folks. But a lot of white people and non-minorities continuously take over sustainability and sometimes frame it as something that you can buy your way into. But when I think about, you know, going thrift shopping with my mom and my grandmother out of necessity because I literally couldn't afford certain brands, I don't know. I feel like I wish that I could go back in time as like a little sustainability fairy godmother and be like, no, even though you're doing this out of necessity, like you should also feel empowered that you're doing something good for the environment because it felt kind of shameful back then. And then now to see thrifting being gentrified and people being praised for going thrifting, it feels like that praise sometimes is only reserved for white people, to put it quite frankly. Um, But yeah, how do you all feel about that? I guess that sustainability sometimes is marketed as something that you can buy your way into. However, we're not really going back and praising all of the BIPOC people and cultures that have 
been doing this out of necessity or just culturally for freaking forever. Oh man, yes. <laughs> it's so frustrating, right? Because at its core, it's erasure. And it's erasure of a community that has, as you said, done things out of necessity, but has also created the frameworks that are now being commodified in so many different ways. And so that's why I think our understandings of sustainability always have to be rooted in, okay, if we're talking about conscious consumerism, whose brands are we buying from, right? Like prioritizing BIPOC businesses and that practice um, to really interrogating supply chains of the corporations that are now saying they stand for racial justice, right? Well, who's making your clothes and what agency do they have? And so I think we really need to go beyond just like, you know, the face value understandings of what a diverse movement looks like. I think for so long, people were kind of stuck in the mode of like, okay, we need one black person and we need one brown person to balance this out. And it's like, that's not, that's not what this means, you know, um, doing the work to really understand why certain communities have been at that disadvantage and how their narratives and paradigms of sustainability are essentially what are pushing this movement forward. Um, but oh man, the gentrification of so many, so many things from, from thrifting to just, I, I don't know if y'all saw the Mahjong uh, brand recently with two white women, to uh, so being a South Asian woman where every day the appropriation of yoga and Ayurveda are happening day in and day out. So it's it pisses me off in a lot of ways. And I think that's why we have so much work to do as those things continue and are kind of bastardizing, you know, the movement of sustainability um, and, you know, clean living, wellness, all of those things. It's all interconnected. Absolutely. I, I don't know. It's just, it's so frustrating when people try to reap. I will lose my mind, maybe. If so, my mom <laughs> always used like a cookie tin. I don't know if other like cultures do this, but she would always have this blue Danish cookie tin that she would put all of her sewing materials into. And I will literally lose my mind if anthropology starts selling like a <laughs> $200 cookie tin. Like I can't, but Kevin, um, yeah, Kevin, did you have any thoughts on that? A lot of people tend to forget that, you know, uh, BIPOC peoples have been doing sustainability for quite a long time. And we, we are quite left out in the conversation of uh, sustainability a lot. Yeah, just adding on to what Kevin said, I think that's why my relationship with sustainability is rooted in the decolonial aspect because, you know, everyone has different relationships with language and the terminology we kind of use to frame this movement. For me, sustainability at its core and decolonizing at its core is always going to be an ongoing process of unlearning dominant systems of oppression. But I think there's two steps. Like for me, the first step is understanding those systems of oppression. And then step two is the work of reimagination, which is so much more easier said than done. <laughs> but I think once you understand the interconnected nature of oppression, that's when you could reimagine a world where you see the interconnected nature of liberation as well. Um, and so I think that's one thing I hope the movement kind of pushes towards, right? It's like 2020 in many ways, as you said, Leah, was, was the year where, you know, a lot of these interconnected things came to the mainstream. So there's a growing consciousness around that. The next step is like, okay, where do you go from here? And how do you reimagine a system? Because there's that quote, and I don't remember who said it top of mind, but it's easier to imagine 
the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism or something along those lines. And I think that's so real, right? When we've been fed a very homogenous, narrow understanding of how the world should operate that's rooted in oppression or it's mechanistic in nature, um, we have a lot of work ahead of us to kind of think, what can that look like as an alternative? Yeah, that reimagining process, I feel like is just getting started for me and a lot of other people. Like, I feel like last year was the first time. And I think it was because so many people at the same time were like, okay, we need an intersectional approach to policy because the same systems of oppression or specifically in this instance, like systemic racism, it's rearing its ugly head so many different places from the environment to healthcare, to capitalism, to the way we do business, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the future, like slowly but surely chipping away at that and reframing and reimagining what the world can look like. And I'm glad we've got people like you doing it. Okay, so to switch gears a little bit, a topic that we are going to be addressing this month and next month on Intersectional Environmentalists is colorism, specifically in the advocacy space and also just like public persona, media, all of that. I know personally that's something that I've had to think about and looking back on um, social justice activism, even Rosa Parks, initially um, there was supposed to be a darker skinned black woman who was going to participate in that you know, boycott. But they said, you know, let's pick somebody who's a little bit lighter or even so many of my favorite social justice activists like Angela Davis are taking a step back and addressing the role that colorism played and making them seem more palatable, I guess. And that's something that I've been thinking about with my, I guess, rise to environmental whatever in the last year and how much colorism likely played a role, how much growing up in predominantly white spaces definitely played a role and what I can do to make sure that I'm addressing colorism. From a different perspective, what has your experience been like with colorism in the activism space or with any of your interactions with media? You know, within the movement itself, again, going back to how I said, you know, when I first got started, I had to make that path for me. I, I feel the same way for other people of color who are the same, who people who look like me, um, you know, who are darker skinned, you know, activists of color are, are always denied op- media opportunities are just opportunities in general because, you know, of their color of their skin or because people of who are lighter skinned or white passing are favored um, even more than, you know, than us. Uh, but in an optimistic way, I, you know, hopefully in the near future, we can solve these challenges uh, posed, you know, by internalized systems of oppression. And it's something that we must address, right? Um, how are we supposed to fight for climate justice if we have internalized these systems of oppression within our own movements? And that in itself is like, also, we have to understand that we also have internalized systems of oppression. A lot of the, the colorism, right? We we don't recognize it, but we favor lighter skinned activists than darker skinned activists. And I, you know, just recently, two weeks ago, I was denied an opportunity because of the color of my skin. And it might not seem that way, but, you know, they said, thank you, we'll not work with you. And they replaced me with a white, you know, white um, person. And so that in itself is like a, it's not a wake up call, but it's something that we all have to be recognized is that we come from a sense of privilege if we're lighter skinned or even white, right? And if we're not, then, you know, 
it's much more difficult to have our voices heard. Absolutely. And I know, I think, I don't know if it's my mom who says this, she's a therapist or someone else, but you know, like when couples are arguing, it's important to remember, it's like, it's not us fighting against us. It's us fighting against the problem. And I think that's something, especially in BIPOC communities with lateral oppression of, you know, it's us fighting together against white supremacy as a whole, which has allowed colorism and even just anti-blackness or anti, like being anti-Asian in the black community, it's very prevalent and understanding that this comes from white supremacy and we're better when we're together. I know that sounds like a sappy Jack Johnson song, but I just, I want people to remember that because there's been an increase in conversation about just exploring Asian identity and as a whole and spotlighting the increase of hate crimes or even just looking at the way that data is collected about the Asian community and how that is low-key kind of racist. So there's so many conversations that are happening and I hope people don't sidetrack that, you know, to kind of compare and making sure that we are holding space for, you know, the Asian community. But Aditi, was there anything that you wanted to say on that note? Yeah, I think both of you hit it in the head, right? Because at its core, uh, what we're fighting is white supremacy. And I think colorism is another manifestation of, you know, proximity to whiteness and how that grants people with light skin privilege, including myself, um, access to opportunities that others don't have. And so I think it's really important on one end to always, you know, we're we're always going to be advocating for diversity. But if I'm selected for a certain campaign or have a certain opportunity, um, it's always something that we have to be vigilant of, right? Um, making sure that you're presenting other names that can, you know, have that opportunity as well. Um, and then going back to what you were saying about, you know, the rise of anti-Asian hate crimes, I'm really glad you touched on this because I think it's really important that our understanding of Asian American identity is often homogenized and there are so many different experiences and backgrounds of socioeconomic uh, backgrounds to colorism as we were talking about. And so I think going forward, it's really important to be specific in our movements, you know, disaggregate data in terms of making sure we understand the unique um, issues that each community is facing. And then also internally to, you know, the Asian community, we have to have our own conversations and unpacking of how anti-Blackness exists, um, how it is also a product of colonial mindsets that have been passed down, but how we also have our own systems of oppression to confront, including caste, right? Um, and I'm really glad that we're at this juncture where these are coming to the forefront because, if we're not constantly interrogating how we are also reproducing these systems, you know, we're <laughs> going to end up creating another system of oppression while, you know, confronting another one. So I think both of you hit it in the head. No, thank you for bringing that up. And I think there's so much that we need to unpack here. And hopefully we can have a second conversation where we can really get into it. And even something that as a T, like I just am so grateful for your platform for honestly, you are what made me aware of the farmer protests that are happening. And I felt so ashamed personally and needed to do some really deep internal because I'm like, how can I be an intersectional advocate when I literally didn't even know that there has been a conflict going on since when no November? And it just really came to light in America 
low key because of Rihanna. However, Rihanna isn't the first person to tweet about it. You've been reporting about it for a long time. And I think that's something that, you know, from this conversation that intersectional advocates need to do, making sure that, you know, the mainstream media, we already know that it's not covering certain topics the way that we want to. And how can we form alliances with people all over the world so we can really just stay attuned to what's going on and making sure that our intersectional advocates advocacy doesn't just stay based in the United States or with certain communities, but just wanted to give you a little shout out for, you know, using your platform and educating us. And yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate that. And yeah, I mean, I think it's important, like as activists, you know, we are also limited in our bandwidth and I think, you know, not having something on our radar, it's nothing to feel ashamed about. It's also a failure of our media or like just media platforms that haven't been doing their due diligence to report on these issues with the attention that they deserve. But yeah, I think that's where social media becomes so important, right? We're decentralizing access to power and information and education. And the farmers protest at its core is a, you know, fight against corporation. It's a fight against people and planet over profit And so it's really important to ground our understandings and, you know, globalize these movements as, you know, I always say all roads lead back to colonialism for me, right? And so all of these movements at its core is a fight against the exploitation that colonialism kind of gave birth to. Um, So thank you for acknowledging that, though. I appreciate it. There's so many things to unpack that I want to unpack, but I got to get into some other things. Um, So you know what? Let's focus on rest. The Nat Ministries, Audre Lorde, there's just been so many people who have talked about how rest is such a powerful act of resistance in the world that we live in, especially for BIPOC, especially because of the way the world is set up for us right now. Um, So how do you all decompress from staying on all the time? Because low-key, some of y'all's followers probably think that you're just like on all the time. And I've thought about that and I've started to post little moments of joy on my personal platform just to remind people that like I'm not always writing. I'm not always like creating resources. I'm all I'm also just trying to experience joy and like have fun with my friends when I can and I'm not stuck in the house. Um, but how do you all decompress? How do you find time for joy? And what has that journey been like for you all to really start prioritizing it? There was a notion very back then, like in the early stages of my activism that, you know, you're not, if you're an activist, you you don't quite get any time to rest, you know, um, you know, and that just me internalizing that because if I were to rest then you know, I would be giving up the chance to really, you know, fight for my community. But uh, ever since, you know, 2020, uh, when IE really came about and I heard this messaging that rest is resistance and rest is joyful, right? And we must take the time to be, Um, to, you know, take the time to rest and, you know, to regain our energies, I began to understand the importance of resting and just to decompress and, you know, relax and get back that energy so that you're able to come back refreshed with a fresh mindset and continue fighting. And so, yeah, I, what I did is, you know, just recently I took a three-month sabbatical and um, just, you know, not answering any of my emails, not answering nobody, you know, not even being on social media that much, uh, and just trying to, you know, FaceTime my friends and just be with community that people who I love and try to have these meaningful conversations about what does rest look like, right? 
um, especially in the in environmental and in these movement spaces, um, and why it's why it's so important for our mental health, for our stress, re- you know, reduction. Absolutely, and one of my favorite quotes, um, I think it's from Audre Lorde, is that you know, taking care of myself is an act of political warfare in and of itself. Like you doing that, you taking time is resisting against the system that tells you that you're not worth it. The system that tells you that your life doesn't matter. And by saying like, I'm committed to joy for me and my community, that's like paving a better future for other people who look like us to really implement joy into their practice. And that's why I love that quote so much. Um, But as it's here for you, how do you find joy? I mean, you stay booked, you stay busy. I see those photo shoots, you know, I know that takes time. So (laughs) when do you rest? Good question. (laughs) No, when you think about it, right? Like for so long, our mainstream, like, understandings of artists and activists was always like you know think about the terminology like starving artists or this idea of like activists always being so limited in their bandwidth because you know there's always something going on and so 2020 for me was also the year of kind of unlearning that and props to IE props to the NAP ministries for championing these narratives of rest because I think you know, 2020 was a year where I really had to unlearn the idea that activists or artists alike have to kind of embody that. So for me, sustainability is as much as it is about both people on the planet is as much as it is about personal sustainability. So whether that's financial sustainability to health and wellness, right? Like, I think we've been fed this idea that we have to say no to certain opportunities or, you know, just can't rest, period. And I think that's that's very toxic. Another thing I think is really important to talk about is like, how are we supposed to be functioning humans after a year of the pandemic, political turmoil, and constant grief in many ways? And I think one thing that I'm thinking more and more about and trying to cultivate in my day today is you can you don't have to carry the weight of everything you can be deeply connected to everything that's happening in the world and you could create space for joy. Like those are not two mutually exclusive things. And it's hard because I think especially as folks that are constantly like exposing themselves to what's happening or trying to be that educational resource, like inevitably we're going to absorb some of that. And I think that's where the power of community like IE has become so key. Um, so to know that you're not alone, but you can hold space for both of those things simultaneously, which is, it sounds simple, but <laughs> in many ways, it's something I am just learning, right? Like the state of the world doesn't have to necessarily reflect the personal peace that you find within yourself. Absolutely. And honestly, like, I don't know, that just made me think like the whole starving artist thing, starving activist thing. There's, it's, it, it's weird. We need to dismantle that completely because even for partnerships, It's like, okay, if we realize like, okay, I do need to maybe get paid for my emotional labor, then people are like, you know what? Who do you think you are? Okay. Like you don't deserve that. And I remember someone commented on one of my posts. I think it was a partnership post that I did. And I think, you know, we should treat those critically. Another conversation for another day. But someone was like, you should be so committed to this work that you would do it for free. And they were white. I was like, okay, well, I am. And that's what I was doing all throughout college, you know, going to, you don't get paid to go to a protest. However, it is problematic that 
people think that way about BIPOC. Like we don't deserve to rest at all. We need to always be on and prove ourselves. And the audacity that we would think that we would get paid sometimes by major corporations that have all the money in the world, like the audacity, that's why supremacy doing its work. And we got to dismantle that because we do deserve rest and we deserve to get paid for our emotional labor. Completely. And as you said, there's nuance in this conversation. Like there is another conversation that can take place in terms of like corporate interests and media. That's a different conversation. But when you are, and I know so many, you know, BIPOC folks, including myself, it's different. The stakes are different when you are your parents' retirement plans, when you don't have generational wealth, when you are, how do you thrive when you're just trying to survive, you know? And I think those conversations are so important to have because again, it exposes the reality of privilege and just who has access and who doesn't. Period. Periodically. Panorama. Okay. (laughs) Kevin, did you have any notes on that? Oh my God, there's so many conversations that we can talk about, uh, really about these important issues, right, that are facing our communities. But again, going back what what you said, Leah, is like, yeah, a lot of people kind of, you know, I've, I've had those uh, snarky little comments as well on my post saying like, you should be able to do this for free. You should, um, you know, why are you even in this space or, you know, and uh, I think one of the things we have to recognize is that a lot of white people do get paid for this work. And uh, a lot of white activists do get, you know, a lot of these space, you know, these spaces that are that the, you know issues that they're talking about actually affect us, uh, BIPOC communities. And so, um, I think it's about time that we as BIPOC activists, you know, take the space that we deserve as well as get paid for it because that's our emotional labor. We're using our personal experiences to really shed a light of what's happening to our communities, and we're not able to do it free because we have a lot of other, you know, BIPOC communities and BIPOC activists really don't have the time to work in these spaces because we have so much going on, right? Um, I think one of the notions I always say is that activism for me is not a hobby, nor is it a, you know, uh, a passion, nor is it a, um, a choice. You know, I don't have, I'm not choosing to be an activist. I have to be one because it's a survival tool for me and my community. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people need to recognize and if you're, you know, white or white passing, you, you're coming from a sense of privilege saying that we're able to do this for free. We're able to do this work and use our emotional labor uh, as well as our voices and our experiences uh, to fight for these injustices, to fight for, uh, for you know, justice um, in a sense of like, you know, uh, like we're able to do it, right? And um, I, I just, I feel that's the reason why we don't have enough you know, dark skinned or even people of color, BIPOC community members, they're a part of this movement because it's so uh, taxing on us and our communities. Guess what, y'all? I'm definitely going to be bringing you on for another episode at some point, whenever you all are not as booked and busy, because I, just my mind is just buzzing around with conversations that we need to have. And I'm looking forward to the opportunity to just growing collectively with you all. And I think Something that's really cool that we've been able to do just in this like IE network council, even outside of the council is just cyclical amplification is important. And as one of us grows, like we can grow together. And I think that's just such a beautiful thing about this, you know, little eco-activist friendship group that we have. But I just wanted to say thank you both for joining us today. And to all of you tuning in to this week's episode of Dismantled, we'll be bringing you new episodes every other week. 
kind of sometimes um and posting updates on our instagram at intersectional environmentalist so thank you all so much for listening i'm leah thomas and here's to a future that's intersectional